A written transcript of this episode is provided by Starburst. For more information, you can see the show notes. Welcome to Data Mesh Radio with your host, Scott Hurlman, sponsored by Starburst. This is Adrian Estala, VP and Field CDO at Starburst and host of Data Mesh TV. Starburst is the leading contributor to Trino, the open source project, and the Data Mesh for Dummies book that I co-wrote with Colleen Tarto and Andy Mott. To claim your free book, head over to starburst.io. Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by my company, Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. This is going to be a panel because while I clearly am not shy about talking, I want to give others in the community a voice too. It definitely shouldn't only come from me. We should be hearing from many different people doing this. If you want to participate in a panel, please do get in touch. You can go to datameshunderstanding.com to see some of the other free community-friendly programs and the other learning resources we have. And you can check out our actually quite reasonably priced offerings. So let's hear some fun music and then jump into a quickish summary of what you'll hear about in this panel. panel. Ahead data architects view of data mesh. Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? Guest host Khan Chow, who's a director of cloud data architecture at Granger and guest of episode 44, facilitated a discussion with Balvinder Karana, who's a technical principal and global data community lead at ThoughtWorks, as well as guest of episode 135. Carlos Saona, who's the chief architect at eDreams Odigio, and guest of episode 150, and Yushin Sun, who's the chief architect of data platforms and data products engineering at J.P. Morgan Chase. As per usual, all guests were only reflecting their own views. The topic for this panel was kind of what the title says, an architect's view of data mesh, especially from an architecture lead standpoint, right? These are all very senior people. There are many challenges architects face in data mesh, managing kind of the micro-level minutiae down to the data product output and input port decisions, but they have to balance that with crucial high-level decisions, you know, balancing the near-term and the long-term vision and roadmap and the North Star and all of that. So this was about kind of how do you, <laughs> how do you make that progress when you have to think about that short and long-term? So I'm going to share my kind of top eight takeaways and uh, there's many more in the show notes. There's 25 more. So if you want to look at that, uh, go ahead and do that. But I try and do that rather than try to reflect each panelist's individual viewpoint because that just gets a little bit to be too much. So my top eight takeaways. Number one, Balvinder said, quote, data mesh expects a lot more out of architects. There would be a lot of people in process and operation management that you will have to understand. So it's important to understand that architects aren't just building out the systems, but the entire org capability to do decentralized data well. It's a lot of responsibility, but also a lot of interesting new challenges. That's something that the the guests kept hitting on was, this is difficult, but it's also very interesting. And that's a lot of what kind of keeps many architects going and, and why they like to lean in on this. Number two, as this keeps coming up in many episodes, doing decentralized data or data mesh, you know, if you call it that, or just in general, decentralized data, doesn't mean everything is decentralized. That's what federated means in data mesh, right? There's building core building blocks that make the work far easier, but not trying to chase into every corner on every use case or anything like that. That's not scalable or repeatable. You're looking to create ways for people to collaborate and interoperate easily. Doing that glue work is what a lot of that kind of centralized architecture uh, or architects role is. So people can focus on 
the specific value add of the use case and the data product and things like that. Number three, it's absolutely crucial to understand that data mesh is not a complete vision yet. If you are expecting to pick it up and simply run with it like it's a playbook, you're in for a bad time. I don't know if that will ever be the case, like even microservices 10 plus years on, and that's not the case, but certainly isn't right now. The tooling isn't exactly here yet to do data mesh easily. And even if it were, we're still in the early days of learning the patterns to do it well. It's more like microservices in 2013 than it is microservices in 2023. We've got a long road ahead of us to learn how to do this well. Number four, every team will interpret data mesh differently. And many will interpret it in a way that lets them do what they want, you know, most, right? Be prepared to step in to prevent people building everything themselves and also be prepared for teams that still expect a central data team to own everything and just say, you know, oh, okay, we're doing data mesh, but nothing really changes. Communication and balance will be key. Number five, multiple years into your journey, kind of we're figuring it out, will still be a common refrain. Don't make flippant decisions, but you'll learn and improve your processes. So leave yourself maneuvering room, but don't worry about getting things perfect at the start. Optimize for learning and iterating to, you know, getting to better, especially on the culture side. Number six, be prepared to compromise. You probably won't be able to decentralize major core systems within your your organization, right? You know, if you've got SAP ERP or something like that, you won't be able to decentralize that immediately or maybe ever. While a perfect setup might be what you want, driving to value sooner is where to focus. Be practical and prepared for kind of better but not good yet kind of outcomes as you implement, especially again early. Number seven, it's easy, especially early in your journey, to get overly focused on one domain or use case. That can be at the architecture level, the ways of working level, all sorts of governance aspects, you know, et cetera. You must keep a balance between the micro, such as down to the use case or data product level, and the macro of can this decision scale and serve the broader organization? Can we, is this repeatable? Things like that. Finally, number eight, your organization is not a greenfield. Be prepared to not look exactly like any other orgs. You'll have lots of constraints. Frustrating, yes, but every single implementation is messy behind the scenes. Everyone is trying to figure this out and cutting some corners or making missteps. Give yourself a break as you learn and iterate towards value. I've kind of talked about this as well if people are giving you the Instagram view of their uh, of their implementations, people aren't really talking about kind of where things have gone wrong or what's still messy or where they're still really struggling. But it's important to understand that, you know, especially from the conversations I have behind closed doors, that's still very much the case. You're not alone if you're having challenges. So with that, let's get into the episode. Okay, with that summary of my top takeaways, and you can see the show notes for more takeaways if you'd like, but let's go ahead and actually hear from our awesome panelists themselves. Hi, everyone. My name is Khan Chow. I'm here today to moderate a conversation on data mass practices and knowledge sharing from the perspective of the Data Architect Office. With me is a panel of data architects who have been on this journey multiple times and multiple years. I will be sharing our learnings and reflection on the journey um, for uh, various uh, perspectives. And so without further ado, I'd like to introduce 
to you, the panelists. Uh, first up is Bavander Kurana. Would you share with us your role, line of work, aspiration, and perhaps a fun story or hobby? Yeah, sure. Uh, thank you so much, first of all, Khan, for moderating this and my co-panelists for giving time and getting together for this interesting conversation. Uh, so I am Balvinder Kurana. I am working with ThoughtWorks, uh, an interesting place to work with being the originator of Data Mesh concept. Um, I've been with ThoughtWorks for 10 years and almost uh, 16 years in industry now. Started out as a backend developer and now for last nine years, I've been working in data. Um, and it has been an interesting journey starting with, you know, the on-premise Hortonworks sort of worlds to now in cloud uh, and data mesh. So interesting journey. Um, and uh, this is my third client implementation for data mesh and all of these clients have been in different places uh, in their data journey as well. So again, a lot of learnings for me also. Uh, we've learned together. And that's my role. I, I work with clients to create a data strategy for them to become a data-driven enterprise and also help them build data architectures to execute and deliver the strategy. So that's about me. Looking forward for a great conversation. Great. Thank you so much. Uh, Matt is Yushin San. Hi, um, I'm Yushin. Um, so I'm the uh, chief architect for a big data platform and strategy team. And um, I've been uh, working on the data mesh version of our uh, data platform for the past three years. Um, then I've uh, worked for uh, Amazon, AWS uh, before that. Um, thanks for having me here. I'm very, very excited to have this discussion with uh, uh, distinguished um, uh, panelists. Um, and uh, I'm very much into uh, like CrossFit and um, I'm running a Spartan race tomorrow. I'm hoping the weather will be better than this, but we'll see. Oh, that's so awesome. I wish I can I can do things like that. But you, you can play drum too and other kind of electronic instruments. Yeah, uh, the drums, um, I'm a beginner. Um, but yeah, I've been playing an electric guitar for a while. Awesome. Yeah, those are my passions. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. All right, uh, the third panelist is Carlos Saona. Hello, uh, thanks uh, for inviting me. I'm very excited about uh, this talk. Uh, I'm, I have a background um, in the pharmaceutical companies and video games. For the last seven years, I've been the chief architect at uh, eDreams, Odigeo, which is an online travel agency, one of the biggest uh, in the world, which is mostly known for European people. And uh, we started uh, our journey uh, with the Mesh, uh, I think a few months after the blog entry was published in the ThoughtWorks in the Martin Fowler's blog, because it was luck. Basically, we were discussing where to go with uh, our data lake or data silos, and then that appeared. And since then, we've been working on that and has worked rather well, but I think it's a very uh, complex and unfinished uh, business, to be honest. And well, uh, yeah, on that thought, Carlos, uh, what has prompted you to pick data mesh at a time? I know you talk about data lakes and some of the challenges, but was there something outstanding that stood out to you from oh, yes. you know, the architecture perspective, why this would work and why you believe in it? Yes, because actually we, um, I mean, for, at the beginning, we just thought that we would implement a data lake because it was, I, I think this was 2019 or something like that when the entry was published. <clears throat> mm -hmm. And that's what uh, the default thing. That was the, uh, let's say, best practice. But then when we're looking at that and we hire, I mean, we asked for, um, we have the RFPs with some big consultant agencies, something was not clicking with us because the whole thing with was around centralized governance and somebody, you know, making sure for every change you did in your online platform that things were according to data governance. And that was impossible in my mind and in some other people's mind to reconcile with the path that we have gone through with microservices, where we had lots of domain-specific oriented teams that did autonomous releases. We did, I don't know, at that time, I don't know, but today we do like uh, 60 releases per day uh, across multiple domains, unorchestrated. There's no centralized people uh, making sure that all those things fit together. And we didn't imagine how that was 
feasible to do with a data lake where somebody needs to control that, you know, every change in a table, in a column, documentation is um, matching uh, the governance. And what stood up in that article was that it was talking about precisely that. How can you have a data lake and a centralized uh, team making sure that everything fits in the world of domain-oriented teams that work autonomously? That was what, for us, was uh, critical to say, we need to look at this because this actually answers the doubts that we have with a data lake, let's say, standard. Yeah, that's uh, you know interesting that you bring up the centralization concept, right? That's something that we've been trained to do for many, many years. And to really change that muscle, right? To really retrain it and, and do something different with it requires uh, a bit of a paradigm shift and, and of course, uh, some discipline and changes much like what Yushin is, is, is doing, right? It's uh, uh, CrossFit and all this uh, thing, but it's actually used to, to get there. So I wonder, right? I'm going to uh, turn this to, to Yushin. Well, what? What is the, the role of a data architect, right? When we hear talk about all these things that we used to do in the past, now as architect, how do we reorient ourselves? And how do we think about adopting a data mesh practice from the architecture perspective? Right. So I'm actually um, more of a platform architect than a data architect. So I'm going to talk about this from the platform architect perspective. Um, so I think... Um, there were things that were easier to do when everything was centralized, right? Before the data mesh, um, you know, your, your software release is easier because there's just one place where you have to update everything. And then once the update is done, you're, you're consistent, uh, with the data mesh, because everybody has ownership of their own like system, right? They all have different, uh, release cycles, um, and you have to make sure that the software update that you're providing for these tenants or, or the users, you know, it has to ensure the forward and the backward compatibility of all the versions that are out there, uh, which makes like software uh, changes more, more complex from the software provider perspective. Um, but it does give you uh, a lot of advantages as well, right? We don't we don't have to have a central team that provides all the features for everyone, right? Um, the central team can still provide the foundational blocks, but the every uh, sort of uh, data mesh data lake owner can layer their business logic on top of that without having to go through the central team. Uh, those are the the big flexibilities and advantages. Um, in the central data lake, we used to have. A lot of applications that get really, really busy at the month end and year end, as you know, that's what the sort of financial services do. They get really busy towards the you know uh, month ends because there there's a lot of reports that are due. Um, and and when those things happen, we we used to step on each other's toes all the time, right? One application grabbing all the resources in a you know single Hadoop, and uh, other uh, app smaller applications are getting starved. Now we don't have that problem anymore, right? I think that's the massive advantage we're um, seeing as we go into the mesh architecture. Yeah, no, that's great insight. And so in a way that not only you can meet the business objectives faster, but you can also build it at scale, right? Be able to distribute that that kind of work. Now, what's, what's also interesting is saying is that we, st we still have some kind of centralization, some kind of core things that we do. And then there are things that may be more consumer aligned or things that may be building uh, ready for use or uh, fit for use kind of data or products then the domain team can build that themselves, right? Uh, are those things that less reusable uh, than the stuff that the core team building? And uh, what do you see, uh, Balvander, when you go to your clients. So is this a kind of a, not quite a completely decentralized, but kind of a hybrid sounds like to me. Um, it's it's uh, one of the way to achieve right before you can go all the way into a fully decentralized. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Right. Um, I, it's a great question because I think in the beginning of our data mesh journey, 
all these different teams had complete different ideas of what data mesh is, and there was no single definition of what it should be. So uh, central team still thought that, you know, we need to standardize on the foundational blocks, uh, while different applications teams or some applications teams thought they had um, the freedom to create, you know, the, the full stack all by themselves. Uh, which is great if you're an island and you don't need to interoperate with other data lake, but that's rarely the case. So uh, there are teams who have gone down that path, and when it comes to interoperability, uh, there's none. So we have to start from ground zero again and figure out like how these things connect together. How do we tell other data lake that, hey, my data is ready, so you can come and you know consume it for various purposes. Um, so. I mean, I think the large part of our journey is really figuring out what is the right balance of what things needs to be centralized and what are the, um, the really business specific and focused deliverables that really application teams or data lake owner teams need to layer on top. And I think we're still doing going through that journey. I, I wouldn't say that that balance has been struck perfectly, but we're working towards that. And also, it's a huge challenge. So, Bavinder, what what's your thoughts on that? Have you seen so many implementations out there in your in Bloodworks uh, practice as well? Yeah, uh, I think uh, that's really a valid uh, question and a valid concern, uh, con uh, especially uh, when it comes to data mesh. And we've all been saying that data mesh is uh, something that organizations need to adopt as they scale. But while this is true, uh, that the the uh, the existing implementations would always be available with these organizations, right? Uh, whenever an organization is just starting or is it a, it's a small organization and does not have any existing data platform, we usually also don't feel the need of an architecture like data mesh. It's usually recommended for bigger organizations who are aspiring to scale with data. And definitely because they are already at that point, they would have some existing systems which are horizontal across the domains, centralized systems. And when I say centralized systems, these are not just data platform, but operational systems as well, right? Systems like SAP, uh, who would consume data from these data platforms. And it's really very difficult to create domain boundaries around these operational systems. So they will, they are going to stay in the organization for, uh, you know, some, some time to come. And then we definitely have to adopt a strategy, which is more of hybrid. Uh, you know, figure out uh, small areas, small pieces where we can start experimenting with uh, domain boundaries. We can start experimenting with decentralization. A lot of time it also needs to, uh, you know, look at the people and the process aspect as that is very integral to data mesh, right? So you need to figure out a time, uh, figure out a team who's, you know, um, uh, exciting enough, excited enough to try data mesh. Uh, you would need to figure out a team who, is ready to take on this challenge and you know build uh, that decentralized architecture which fits with the existing uh, centralized architecture as well so it usually progresses that way and then there is definitely a fine balance of uh, top down and bottoms up so as we start implementing this uh, decentralized approach starting with a smaller team which is more of like a bottoms up approach where other teams also start looking at the benefits you know, this first team is getting out of such kind of an approach uh, that mixes with the top-down, you know, uh, initiatives of creating the organization domains more autonomous and, you know, building benefits out of uh, the ability to scale these domains independently rather than having a centralized platform where everyone is just stuck on that bottleneck. As earlier, Yoshin was mentioning, right, end of the month, you have to generate so many reports and everybody's stuck on that bottleneck. So, you know, this this tug between the top down and bottom up and that evolution of hybrid architecture is what I've seen working with most of the organizations. So there's more appetite for our leadership to accept, right, to see result as we're able to build something like this. Um, so a little bit about what my observation from doing this a second time to is um, system like SAP and AS400 has been around for many years and over time, we put so much stuff in there, right, and build a whole ecosystem around the system. To really break it apart and moving away from centralization, I think, 
I agree with all of you guys. I think we need to start with something small and finding enough sponsorship, right? Enough excitement around it. I also find that it's okay to fail the first time too, or maybe the second time, right? And just had to really go at it. And I see Carlos smiling here. So, what 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 is your thoughts on this? How do you go about? Hey, I might fail the first time, but we can't go back and do it again, right? And how do you get leadership to say, hey, believe in in what we're doing? It's a, I'm smiling because it's a super good question. Actually, last was about setting the expectations because you need first to convince, uh, yes, leadership uh, executives that this is a necessary thing to do or a, a viable thing to do. But then once you do that, I think that almost unavoidably is the question of, okay, how soon can we have this running? And then you have to manage that uh, hype that you did uh, build. And in our case, what we said is, okay, we have to start small. But first, because remember when we did this, I mean, there's an, an article in, in a blog. There's no real, I mean, other people would be starting now, but there's no real thing to, to, to follow here. There's no best practices, there's nothing. So we wanted to do um, small steps. And in our... Uh, expectations to to our stakeholders. We said, for the first iterations, we reserve the the right to change completely the architecture and the approach and everything. This you you have to say. I mean, beforehand, because otherwise, if it happens, and it's likely that it's going to happen, because at the end, it is a very uh, let's say early uh, idea. Uh, you won't be able to backtrack, and then you will be building a huge system on a foundation that it's not very good. So you have to understand that at the beginning, you're building a foundation, you're learning uh, what you do, and you need then that it's true to um, at some point say, okay, now it's fine for anybody that wants to try this to, to join us. But at the beginning, you need to be super controlling of who does that. And before um, accepting somebody to play with it, may play. To experience uh, data mesh, they need to understand that a maybe um, in three months with the second use case we're going to change things and this is going to impact you back because we're not going to be, going to be able to guarantee backwards compatibility or whatever at this point uh, uh, we, we cannot do that. I think that was very helpful. And then when the time comes to say, hey, everybody, we're mature enough that everybody's invited. Of course, things can happen but you are more confident that you have seen all the problems that you uh, are going to see from a technical point of view than organizational things that are a different subject. Anyone want to expand on that or add to it? Yeah, I think one of the things that I've found really helpful, so completely agree with uh, earlier what Carlos was saying, and because this is something which, you know, as an industry, we're still learning, we're still growing, and, you know, we're seeing how to completely understand the benefits of it. And uh, again, because we're starting small, uh, not everything is visible on day one, uh, right? So one of the things that has really helped me is uh, drawing the parallels from the microservices world. And that's where the concept is based on, right? So telling them how we have seen the success in the microservices world or, you know, just helping them to imagine like if this entire thing was based around those concepts, how could it become a success for the organization how could it bring in the operational benefits, the business benefits? I think that is something that has really helped me get the buy-in from the leadership and the sponsorship. So we agree, eh? in our case, the microservice move was something that was a success in, and it was very obvious in several KPIs, like the release cycles. And th that way you kind of build credibility and you kind of expand. You say, well, now that we are here, the data aspect needs to also to be changed. Yes. If, if we had a, let's say, not very successful microservice um, experience, then I don't, I don't think we could have uh, got the, the, the buy-in the buy to, to do this. Right. So, uh, yeah, architects are not wizards. So we make a lot of choices, and some of those choices will be wrong, and we need to experiment, and we need to pivot quickly once we find out that something's not going to work. Um, but in order to do that efficiently, I think uh, we need to give some thoughts on providing like enough uh, abstraction layer 
so that any sort of tight integration to a particular tools or platforms um, are limited and isolated so that when we pivot away from it, we don't have to you know, rebuild everything from ground up. Um, so that's something that uh, I've been learning over time. Yeah, and that's, um, you know, that's something about technology, right? They're not, uh, they will evolve, they will change. How do we pivot away from it? Um, and that kind of bring up an interesting uh, discussion I had internally uh, within my groups um, is how do we go about architecting this whole thing right, in a data mesh approach without overly rely on one particular set of technologies? Um, because technologies usually require skills, right? People know how to use it properly, how to optimize it and operate it. So what what would be your thought? Or what, what would be the things that you're looking for? What technologies, uh, how do you go about selecting technologies? What are the principles or maybe um, the guiding lights, maybe, when you talk about technologies create a self-serve data platform or platforms. Now, what would, what would be the, the things that you're looking for in terms of capabilities and longevity and so on? All right, let me let me take a quick at that first. Um, so, I mean, you know, when you're looking at a, a tools or platform of substantial size, there's no way you're not going to know every feature, every performance characteristics. Um, so there's has to be a certain amount of uh, sort of subjective interpretation of how good this pro uh, product would be. Um, obviously, you want to do uh, quantification of uh, how this how this software is you know put together by you know subjecting it through various performance testing as objectively as you can. Um, but then. You also want to know, get to know the the engineers uh, behind the software. Uh, talk to them and find out about what their work, work culture is. And you know, different software vendors have uh, very very different uh, work cultures. Some are very like marketing centric. Some are very very engineering centric, but have very poor uh, marketing arm. And those are the the companies that I usually uh, like and go after. Um, and I think uh, those things make a big difference. Um, those companies with engineers who truly believe believe in the 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 product and the the whys of why they build that product uh, really go far. Yeah, I think uh, when it comes to tools. Um or tech stack particularly, uh, the way uh, I would look at it is look at the the central platform, the self-serve platform that we call uh, differently and the domain uh, tool stack differently. Uh, the reason I say this is because this central platform, the idea is this could support the entire organization's data mesh, right? So this central platform uh, definitely needs a broader outlook. Uh, even if we are starting small with just one domain, uh, you still need to have, you know, some high level understanding of the entire organization uh, in terms of, you know, what is their future vision? Uh, you know, what is their cloud strategy, so to say, right? Do, do they want to, you know, move to a specific cloud, have multiple cloud vendors or have a hybrid strategy? All of that, you know, uh, needs to be taken into consideration. Uh, generally, I call this a team model where you go broad first and cover the entire horizontal uh, you know to some degree of detail and then you go deeper into the domain that you're working with uh, at that point in time and based on all of this information uh, select a tool stack for the central platform which is a little future looking so that it could support you know all the domains and the use cases that are going to come within the mesh with the data uh, product team or the domain team, you get more flexibilities. Uh, there could be certain capabilities which are uh, specific to those domains uh, and don't have to go sit in with the uh, central data platform capabilities. Uh, there you have, uh, you know, more uh, scope for experimentation with tools and you could pick a tool which is, like, let's say, 
you know uh, more cutting edge you don't know you know the maturity levels but this is something that is new and you want to try because again you you're working in that smaller scope right so the the scope of uh, failure to the entire mesh is uh, not there uh, you can just contain it within the domain and learn quickly and adopt something new so that's how i look at it i was i was using the time uh, listening and also thinking <laughs> for my answer uh because uh, it's a intriguing question if i look back what we did was first i, mean, I think if you're going to to implement data mesh you're already of a certain size or otherwise it's not so if that means that probably you already have not one but multiple data platforms uh, and 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 you call them data silos but they're probably working more or less fine so it means that you already have experience in your company with those systems you know how well they scale um how performant they are all these things you know and that's what we did and the process that we follow was the the most uh, important criteria the one that uh, mattered to us what we thought was more risky was when you have database working, you have things like um, access control, uh, policies, privacy, uh, financial grade data, and all these things. And you want to implement policies, let's say at the platform level, that can be configured by, by teams. So those were the kind of features that we were citing. Also, for, for the data itself, there's not a lot of, I mean, at certain scale, there's the big vendors, and not to make mention any names, but there's not like uh, 15 options available. There's a very limited set. So in our case, what we really um, looked deep into is, okay, we need to uh, implement policies that can be declared by the people that own the data and then can be enforced automatically by the platform team without having to interact. This needs to be self-service. And it was the self-service part that I think drove most of the capabilities that we used to Discard or select. Also, I think that if you're in, in cloud, which I guess it's another probably must if you want to do this, because otherwise, I don't know. I mean, scaling this is is tricky. You probably already have a cloud provider, and the cloud provider you have is going to probably be a, a big influencer of um, on the the tools that you're, you're going to use. Had you brought up the um, the whole business of silos, right? Uh, and that's that. I'm going to pull on this thread a little bit because this is something a, a little bit of a soapbox for me. Would I have data uh, tech stacks that can copy and store data, right? Maybe in a different format than where the source of truth is. And I find that challenging to manage, right? Especially when you start thinking about the legal aspect, the governance, and all this compliance. Uh, how do you go about dealing with something like this when we know that the world in financial and even in retail um, is, is getting a lot more uh, sensitive about what kind of data we store and use and pass around? Uh, there are legal aspects of certain kind of data set that we share in a marketplace that we're not supposed to pass to a third party without meeting certain kind of um, uh, legal guidance. Um, and I find that a little bit challenging for me, right, to say, look, um, it's okay to have this tech stack here because we're used to do it and we're coming up with something new that we want everybody to use. But we, in the meantime, we have to make this transition from this whole hybrid approach of multiple tech stacks, multiple uh, places to store data, and then figure out how to bring them all together later on. And as you know, in IT, uh, it takes a long time to sunset something, right? To move away from something that we build on all the tech debts and accidental complexities, bring all kind of new challenges to it. Um, so I wanted to, to, to talk a little bit about silos practice. How do you go about managing that kind of, of, of things uh, from the uh, partitioner as a, as a, a, a chief you know, architects or uh, CDO? What, what is that uh, the, uh, advices that you would give to someone to, to think about this? So it's interesting because um, just, you know, several years back, um, we never called them data copy, but we call them data distribution, right? Where the front office would uh, capture some data 
from trading and that would just blast out the data through some kind of streaming distribution uh, protocol. Uh, and then every system that needed the data would capture it, persist it, and then do stuff with it and do the same, right? And that used to be sort of a best practice. And, and for some cases, that may still be best practices. But if you think about it, that's all data copy. And now uh, I think data copy is sort of becoming a dirty word. And we, we try to really minimize that because as an organization, I think we realize what cost we're paying by you know making copies of copies of copies, especially, I mean, not just the, the storage costs or the compute costs, but you know all the sort of governance, uh, the entitlement policy control costs that we have to pay. Um, and that's why I think um, this kind of goes back to the tool choice discussion as well. Uh, the tools that we select, the, the one of the more important criteria is that it has to support the sort of open format that is understandable by many different tools. Um, not all tools are like that, obviously, right? There are some tools that you still use as a proprietary uh, format and by definition, we can we have to make a copy into that tool for that tool to do stuff with that data, right? Um, so, you know, it, it, tools that just support the open, you know, Parquet format or you know other sort of well-known open source format. I think that's a very very important aspect of selecting the tools, and that will ultimately result in making less copies. That's a great point. <laughs> You, Shane, I, I just, um, when you talk about open formats and ability to do that, are we at the point that we can really leverage something like that from the platform perspective? Are we are we at the point that say, hey, I can have a data management ecosystem. The data will be stored this year. I, would, I never have to re-platform, re-migrate it to something else. But I can put on different computing engine, right? And I can access that data so I can do certain things that would be best for that workload. Uh, so, for example, if I have a cloud data warehouse that's really good with OLAP and analytics, and I want to be able to get that data and there to do these things, I can. Or if I have another technology that so I can access that, that base layer data, and my computer engine is maximized for model serving, right, to build models and all that stuff, I can do that too. Are we at the point that we can take a look at open formats and these kind of technologies to help with, you know, reducing the whole, you know, uh, break the, break this 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 whole migration replatforming things that we've been doing for the last I don't know two or three decades. I like everyone to chime in on this one. I know this is uh, something at my heart. I feel that we need to tackle this sooner than later. I will answer, but first I want to answer the data silos and, and data copy because they are, to me, two very uh, interesting things. Data silos, what was, <laughs> in our case, data silos, the, the the thing that was challenging at the beginning was to um, make all the users of the data silos that we already had at ease with the idea that we're going to, to go with an alternative, which was the data manage, because they were immediately worried that we were going to decommission on our own, let's say, schedule, and then they will have to migrate in a rush, and that will completely dis, um, destroy their own backlogs and prioritization. So we had to reach an agreement, okay, where this is going to be, if you want to join, you can join. If not, it's fine. We, are, we only ask of you that you do not continue investing in any more features in your silos, without telling us first, because we want to analyze whether it's more expensive, the investment on something that we want to abandon, I mean, many, many years from now, or you move into data mixtures around the silos. Around the data copy, that's it's something that uh, for us, it's extremely painful because we differentiate two, two kinds of data copy. If you want to data copy the data that is already in the mesh, it's fine with us because you're copying something which is a contract and there are the producers of the data have a contract with you to maintain that and do versioning and all these things. Of course, 
because of compliance, if you take, do the data copy instead of just consuming in the data uh, ecosystem that we have in the cloud, you will have to um, enjoy uh, the fun of compliance because you are copying personal data, you're copying maybe financial data, and we have policies in place in the mesh to know that you're doing that. So now you need to enjoy it. And that, I think it's a good incentive for people not to data copy. And then there's another kind of data copy, which is the one that fuels, uh, I think, many silos, which is people copying the data directly from the operational databases. And that is the one that hurts the most. Creation, an ODS or something, right? Another ODS. Yeah. We all know, uh, yes, we all know what we're talking about. And that, in that case, we're our incentive to everybody that's using this is say, hey, remember how often you complain about, hey, somebody in development changed a table and they broke a whole dashboard and now, I mean, this is a huge crisis. This is happening because you're you're copying data that is purpose for a different thing. The owners of the data don't, don't even know that you are using this because this is part of something that the, the DBA set up some years ago. So if you want to stop feeling this pain, please join us at the data mesh where you can use the, the the data without copying if you want. You can copy also, but you have a contract. You know that the versioning is stable and the producers of the data are accountable for this. They will own all these changes. And then for your third uh, question about the ecosystem, I think that today... I'm not. I'm not super expert at this, but I would think that the technology is not ready to consume in any format because things like indexing are very. I mean, for BI or just for the pricing structures in many of these cloud data warehouses, sometimes you will want to have a pipeline to replatform. So certain dashboard or queries are in a different system because it's more performant. Or it's equally performant, but the pricing structure is more flat. So I think that we're close, but at least I don't see it in uh, in, in my future in the next uh, two, three years, unfortunately, because that will help with the data copy, right? Because what is the I mean, why would you want to copy anything if everything that you can do with data it's already doable in the platform that we build? But if somebody uh, disagrees, I would really, really love uh, to hear how they do it, uh, because it would be, in a, it would be a, a big relief. Definitely another discussion I'd like to have with you and everyone on that one. But go ahead, Bavender, sorry to interrupt. No, no. And so, yeah, I was just also thinking, uh, retrospecting a little bit, and, uh, you know, from data distribution to data copy, from that connotation of sharing and distribution distribution of data to enable all the parts of organization to this connotation of data copy, how did we reach there? And I think uh, while all of us were, you know, on, on the on-premise systems, it didn't uh, matter a lot to organizations or to the data generators uh, where and how many times the data was getting copied because there was this... Uh, safety net that was always available which meant that the data was on the data centers of the organizations and could be accessed only via the organization network and the authorized people and there was not so much intent and uh, concerns re regarding data getting copied because there was this some sort of security inbuilt uh, now that we started moving into cloud and we started uh, and, and then there is this whole uh, the idea of data being available to the entire world because of the virtue of being on cloud, I think this has become a larger concern and organizations want to know, you know, how many places my data is getting copied and how are the accesses controlled to that data. So I definitely think that we are at a juncture where we need to define some open policy format uh, for sharing of this data uh, and not just from the perspective of the data um, consumers, I think also from the uh, organization's legal security and compliance department, uh, I think I was in, in my recent engagement itself, we were talking to the legal department of the clients and we said that, you know, we really would like uh, some help from you in defining security policies and uh, they were in a situation where they did not even know what are the use cases of this data and, you know, what are the different data getting generated and flowing across the organization and 
we need that format so that not just consumers can understand and then you know consume the data accordingly but even the policy makers have a format that is understandable by them to define who and you know in what format can use this data there's another trigger for this uh this is restricted at least to the european union because even if you're on prem describe uh-huh. it was true a few years ago but with the current uh, very strict privacy laws that we have, even if you have everything on-prem, if a customer contacts you via phone or email and says, hey, I want to know all the data that you have on me, or I want you to delete all the data you have on me, then you have a legal obligation to know where all your data is. And that, unless in the old world of silos and data copying uh, you know, freely, it's a disaster. because just, I mean, it, unless you have something in place and you have a structure policies at certain scale, you can, I mean, just complying with one request can take weeks of work. Uh, and then you will not be sure, uh, unless you do this right, you will not be sure at the end of those weeks of work that you really, really did everything and that there's not, uh, you know, a job somewhere that is going to send an email to the person that supposedly you did the data and you're going to get fined. Um, massively uh, in in Europe. It's another incentive for doing this right. Sure. I still want to double-click on what Carlos said about performance, because I think there are uh, open data formats that stood the test of time in various industries that we could have various tools um, sharing that open format and data will be interoperable functionally, but when it comes to performance, different tools have their own magic sauce. Even while using the open format, there's always something proprietary that makes them faster. And obviously there is no standard around the magic sauce. So I think what ends up happening is you you have few of these like Uber uh, vendors that ends up providing features for the full stack, going from data engineering to data science to uh, AI ML, rather than you know mash of various tools that uh, interoperates on an open format. Right? I think that would really be the ideal state, target state, but I think we're not there yet. Well, that's a great observation. <laughs> tool, tool vendors has to grow the market, and to grow it is to keep the magic sauce and the secret and building up on top of it. Uh, I find that's very interesting, um, you know, insights there. Like just to kind of um, summarize what we are speaking so far, because we're getting into this a little bit tool, tools a little bit um, here. I think we started out with saying, hey, is, um, is our model of data mass practice, right? Uh, centralized, decentralized, a hybrid. I think we all agree that the hybrid approach is the best transition state for us to do. Um, and then we talk about how do we go about managing uh, the platform, the data, uh, the data management aspect of copying data. What are the different solutions or thoughts that the challenges that we have and continue we're going to have? Uh, we speak a little bit about open table format, so open format with different kind of tool chains that we can do and and on that one i thought that maybe we can just talk a little bit about um if you have a crystal ball right uh two or three years from now what what do you see where we are going with this whole data mesh practice and um are we going to be successful wildly successful that everybody in the company is going to be able to accelerate analytics and doing all these wonderful things that we're trying to achieve with machine learnings and AI, uh, or are we going to be kind of going back and reevaluate where we are because the technologies and the practices and stuff like that that we're still learning that we're going to take a little bit more time to uh, work it out. Uh, what, what does each of you have to say about it, the future? Um, I, I think we will... Uh need a few minutes at least to look into our magic balls. But uh, uh, I guess what I would expect in two or three years is the big 
cloud vendors, because I think that all of us that we're doing the data mesh, we have we had to implement lots of things on our own and build pipelines and such, and then automations regarding self-service and compliance. I guess that uh, most of the most core uh, ingredients will be part of a magic sauce, uh, <laughs> per using this terminology, uh, of the big cloud vendors. So I, I expect that many of the things that we have developed, I, I would like to be able to decommission them in two or three years and replace them with something that is managed by 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 the big uh, cloud vendors or not the big cloud vendors, but some of the companies that operate in, in, into that space. That's, at this point, the only uh, thing I see in the magic, uh, in my very tiny magic ball. Yeah, I think for me, uh, we still need some time to sort of understand the success of, and also to define the different pillars of the data mesh and the data mesh itself. I think in next two to three years, we'll probably be at a place where we'll be able to say some of these are like sensible defaults for data mesh. And this is something that we've seen working and would work for most of the organizations or most of the situations. Uh, but there would be still a lot of refinement that would happen around more granular details, right? So, for example, when we talk about uh, federated computational governance, uh, now that we started working with this concept, we realized that not everything in governance could be computational. If I'm talking about, let's say, data models across the domains, how can I computationally create data models? That's not something really feasible, or at least we don't have tools to do that right now. So we might have tools in future, uh, which would sort of uh, validate uh, the concept, or we might invalidate the concept and say that we want to break down governance further and see what is federated, what is computational, and what is not. So I think we'll reach that state where we have better clarity of the core concepts of data mesh itself, and we'll know what works. Um, my projection of what may happen is... So we, the pendulum swung from one end to the other, right? One end being the everything centralized to everything sort of being federated. I think what may happen in two, three years time is um, a bit of a hybrid, especially toward in, in the smaller size teams. Because data mesh kind of has the assumption that every team build their own data lake with a, you know, a set of software services but they also have to be capable of supporting uh, what they're running. And big, large teams, yes, they're very capable of having their own tech team, tech support team, SREs, they can do that. Smaller teams, not so much, right? Uh, so there may be some efficiency in pulling the smaller team's data lake into one. The other driver may be the cost efficiency because they're... It, there will come a time uh, when we fully realize the cost of running everything on AWS and there's a lot of room for optimization and every data lake running their own account with its dedicated services is not very cost efficient. So there may be room for um, centralizing some of the smaller uh, data lake into one. Um, that's just my guess. Yeah, I, I think um, initially we might not be as cost effective and maybe not as performant, but we have ability to scale if we start thinking the data mesh approach of building data products and building capabilities to enable teams to take on these activities themselves. And I, I, I agree with you, the pendulum will swing uh, back to where it is. Uh, maybe uh, over time we'll got to achieve a better operational model that works for the business. Uh, I have to say, Yushin, you kind of broke my my ego a little bit when you talk about that architects are not wizards. And, uh, okay. uh, you know, I say, ah, I thought I'm pretty good, but oh boy, that's where they help me to uh, bring me back to us. Um, finally, I just want to um, kind of um, get your thoughts on just last questions. Uh, for those who as aspire to go into a data mesh as an architect or a practitioner, is that uh, one or two sentences of advice that you would give to them 
um, and what would they do? I think that today there's, uh, there are no best practices yet. I don't think we're in that situation, but there's a lot of um, people documenting or talking about their experience. I will start with that. I would also advise to manage, this is a, hu a huge company-wide project. So I would advise maybe not to choose this as, as your first company-wide project. It's better if you have done things of this magnitude in the past, if you're going for a practitioner, let, do something else where the best practices are more clear. That would be my, my for a possible colleague. The, I think that these, starting with this requires lots of knowledge and, and, and reputation in the company where you're, you're trying to do it. Of course, consultants are different, but for a practitioner in a company, I think it's a very complex thing to do. The landscape, you don't know the landscape, right? The systems and the people. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah, I think uh, plus one to what Carlos mentioned, uh, it, it is a complex uh, uh, journey. Uh, and uh, I think there would be a lot of unlearning that you'll have to be prepared for uh, while you're in this journey and be ready to be in this uh, gray area, in this ambiguous area where you will learn things as you grow uh, in the journey. That's one. And uh, I definitely feel that you'll also be have to prepare for a lot of non-technical responsibilities as well when you are on a data mesh journey. Like typically, architects are known to, you know, just sit on their laptop and, you know, work with tools and technologies and architecture. I think data mesh expects a lot more out of architects. Uh, there would be a lot of uh, people and process and operation management that you will have to understand and sort of, uh, uh, you know, uh, impact also during your journey. So that is another expectation that people would have from you as a person or a anchor on data, map, uh, data mesh. Right. I, I second all that. Um, I mean, if you're the type of person who like to um, go and read a, you know, very thick textbook, uh, that tells you all the prescriptive steps on you know how to get uh, that mesh architecture working with uh, you know 10, 12 steps. This is not that space. Um, so you, you have to be able to deal with a lot of complexity. You have to be practical. You have to make up a lot of your own stuff. Uh, very dynamic, uh, very demanding, um, very deep and very wide, right? So definitely challenging, but I really can't think of any better job I want to be doing than what I'm doing now. This is very, very exciting. Uh, gives me a lot of freedom, a lot of room for creativity. Um, so if this sounds good, then uh, yeah, get after it. Uh, so wonderful to hear you talk about the advices and recommendation. Uh, it's, it's a hard road. It's, it's a difficult journey, but it's going to be uh, satisfactory, right? It's something that you want to do. Uh, it's, it's, it's the right thing to do uh, to, to be able to do something. I think the data space is going to be amazing in the next few years. Things, uh, advancing innovations and capabilities got to come out to help support this kind of approach to enable organization to scale, to do things more, to solve emerging use cases in a very different way. Um, things are going to be very exciting in this space. So definitely, I would also encourage everyone to start taking up data mesh thinking and, you know, uh, get involved in the communities, exchange ideas, uh, work with Scott, right, who is a great host, has so much materials and time is put, spend putting together a number of podcasts and, and various um, working with various groups to provide blogs. So, uh, we have a very a big and exciting community to work with. Um, so to close the session, I want to thank each of you uh, for taking your time today. I know some of you, like Bob Under and Carlos, is getting late over there. So I really appreciate, appreciate your time. And for the rest of you, I hope we can speak again in another time, uh, talking about some more exciting stuff to provide more practical insights and guidance to the communities. Definitely. Definitely, yeah. Thanks, everyone. I'd again like to thank all of our participants today. 
Our guest host was Khan Chow, the Director of Cloud Data Architecture at Granger and guest of episode 44. And our panelists were Balvinder Karana, Technical Principal and Global Data Community Lead at ThoughtWorks, as well as guest of episode 135, Carlos Saona, Chief Architect at eDreams Odigio, and guest of episode 150, and Yushin Sun, Chief Architect of Data Platform and Data Products Engineering at JPMorgan Chase. You can find links to all of their LinkedIn's in the show notes as per usual. Thank you. Panels really are my favorite. And no, it's not just because I don't have to do the hard work. I, I swear. They give you a chance to hear from folks entirely devoid of my own views, which I think is crucial in our learning journey to figure out how to do data mesh well. Hopefully this one was super useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show. Almost all guests have said that they'd really love people to reach out. Data Mesh Radio is again provided by Data Mesh Understanding and is produced and usually hosted by, you know, except for these panels, by me, Scott Herleman. Do check out our website, datameshunderstanding.com, for more information. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised by our offerings and some of the free programs out there. I hope you have a great rest of your day. And with that, let's hear that funky outro music. Mm-hmm.